Thank you, Marty Buck. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Revelation 4, Revelation 4. Uh, we're jumping off the cliff together today. We're moving into the future section of Revelation 4. Remember, the book of Revelation is really comprised of three parts. Last week, we did a class on hermeneutics to help us have the tools to be able to interpret uh, prophecy. And we said that a literal interpretation of Scripture that is a consistent hermeneutic throughout Scripture is probably going to yield us the most accurate interpretation. Scripture follows, Revelation Scripture follows a three-part outline, and John actually wrote it down in chapter 1, verse 19. He told John, I want you to write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. So the vision of Christ that he had in chapter 1, verses 10 through 18, those are the things that John had just seen. That's the past. And remember, we spent several weeks, a couple of months in, in uh, the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3. Those were the things which are the church age and chapters 4 to 22, which we're just beginning now. These are the things which take place after these things. That's the future. Now, remember, the central theme of the Gospels is the first coming of Jesus Christ. If you're looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the central theme is the first coming of Christ. The central theme of the entire book, not just today's lesson, but the entire book of Revelation, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. So keep that overarching theme in mind as we go along. Let me give you just a brief outline for the rest of the book. Chapters 4 and 5 now are going to give us a view of heaven in preparation for the events that are going to take place on earth during the tribulation period, which begins in Revelation 6. Chapters 6 through 19, the bulk of the central part of Revelation, records God's judgment on planet earth. The seven seal judgment, the seven trumpet judgments, the two witnesses, war in heaven, war on earth, the beast, the false prophet, the seven bowl judgments, the fall of Babylon. So there's a lot of material we're going to cover in chapter 6 through 19. Chapter 20 describes the millennium, or chapter 19, the second coming rather. Chapter 20 describes the millennium and the great white throne judgment. And then chapter 21 and 22 describes the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. The Old Testament has an enormous about to say about the book of Revelation with the exception of the last two chapters. When you get to chapters 21 and 22, the new heaven and the new earth, the eternal state, no Old Testament prophets saw beyond the Messianic kingdom. So that is all brand new material to the book of Revelation. An enormous amount of Revelation is already spoken of in the Old Testament. There's 404 verses in the book of Revelation, over 800 allusions to uh, Old Testament prophecy and New Testament. So it really is an organizational book that sequences Old Testament prophecy with respect to the end time. So we're going to jump into that a lot. Now remember, as you go through the book of Revelation, things happen quicker and quicker and quicker, and they become more and more and more intense. So the judgments that God is going to inflict on planet Earth for sin become far more devastating as time go on. So, God did not write this book for us just for information. God never writes anything to us just for information, correct? He writes to us so we will apply, so we will know what we do, so we will prepare for what is inevitable. Here's a phrase, it's not a key thought, but I thought it was worth saying. It's prudent to be prepared for the probable. We have insurance. I hope I don't get in a car accident, but it's probable at some point in time in my life I'll get in a car accident. So it's prudent to prepare for the probable. It's inconceivable to be unprepared for the inevitable. Everyone on planet Earth is appointed for man to die once, right? And after that comes judgment. Not to prepare for what is inevitable is the height of 
folly, for lack of a better word. All right, let's dive in. Chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Now, if you'll notice this verse, I need your pen in your hand because you're going to use it a lot. Verse 1 has after these things at the very beginning of the verse, underline that, and the very end of the verse. After these things shows up twice. The first time John is talking. John says, after these things I looked. That means after chapters 1, 2, and 3, I, John, I'm going to receive the next part of the revelation. So after these things, the first time is John talking. The second time at the end of that verse you see after these things, that's Jesus talking. Jesus says to John, I will show you what must take place after these things. The Greek word for after these things is metatauta, M-E-T-A-T-A-U-T-A, metatauta. And in Revelation, it always usually marks a transition point, a new vision, or in this case, a new era. This is highly significant. Chapter 4 marks the end of the church era. Chapters 2 and 3 were all about what? Seven churches in the seven churches and what Jesus had to say to those churches in the church era. Chapter 4 takes place after the church age is over. Now I'm already revealing my hermeneutic here. I've already told you that I believe strongly that a literal interpretation of scripture will cause you to view chapters 4 through 22 as future. We went through the four interpretation systems last week. There are competent scholars on many, many sides of this. But remember, your hermeneutic is going to determine your interpretation. If you view Scripture literally that God means what He says and says what He means, and you take the plain meaning of Scripture, you will view chapter 4 through 22 as largely future. So that's the hermeneutic we're going to be teaching Trump from here today. So if 4 to 22 is future, then the church is raptured before chapter 4. Somewhere between chapter 3 and chapter 4, the church is raptured. This is known as the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I also want you to know, I want you to underline in chapter 4, verse 1, and Jesus says, come up here and I will show you the things which must, underline the word must, take place after these things. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to describe for you the things that might take place, that may take place. That's optionality. When Jesus Christ says must, what can you count on? It's going to happen. It's definitely going to happen. So, chapter 4 is a major shift from the church on earth to God's throne in heaven. Chapters 4 and 5, this week and next week, are all about the throne room of heaven and what takes place there. And God's going to show you that in preparation for what's going to happen on planet earth from 6 through 19. After these things I looked and behold, a door standing open where? In heaven. Now, when they say behold, that's a fancy way of saying, wow, astonishing. What a surprise. If you looked up and saw a door open in heaven, I think you'd say wow too, right? You might not say behold, a door. You'd probably say, whoa, a door, you know. So it says that John did not see the door being opened, correct? He said the door was already standing open. Now, an open door means access, right? We talked about Philadelphia a couple weeks ago. God gave them an open door for evangelism. An open door says you have access to heaven. The Bible refers to heaven about 550 times. Heaven is anything which is literally high or lofty. Now, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the third heaven. Actually, there's three heavens in Scripture. 
The first heaven is the atmospheric heaven. We call this the troposphere. It's the air, it's the atmosphere, it's the stuff we breathe, right? Planet Earth. Beyond that, the planetary heaven is the almost infinite space that contains everything else. The sun, moon, the stars, the galaxies, the Milky Way, the created space-time continuum we call the universe, right? That's planetary heaven. The third heaven where Paul was caught up in 2 Corinthians 12 is the throne room of God. It's the abode of God. It's where God lives. That's the third heaven, and that's where we're going today. Paul called it paradise. Paradise is an enclosed garden or a private park, literally. The, the heaven where God lives is where Jesus went after his ascension to do what? Prepare a what? A place for who? Us, right? Now, getting to heaven is a very rare item on the human time schedule. In scripture, there's only four recorded visits to heaven by humans. That doesn't mean other people didn't have a vision, but they didn't, weren't transported there in the same sense. Four times. Isaiah in Isaiah 6, Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, and now the Apostle John in Revelation 4. So he says, I saw a door open and I heard a voice like a trumpet. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, remember that Jesus, the exalted risen Christ, reveals himself to John in the middle of that chapter, and he speaks to John in an authoritative voice that sounds like a trumpet. We've mentioned in this class over the years that God never makes suggestions. God can speak in a still, small voice, but when he wants your attention, he can turn the volume up. Have you noticed <laughs> that when he does need your attention, he can get it. He knows how to get it. He's speaking to John here in a voice of authority, and he commands John to do what? Come up here, and I will show you. Now, here's the principle. The only accurate view of life on earth is the view from God's throne in heaven. The only accurate view of life on earth is the view from God's throne in heaven. Now, God called John to heaven because John's earthly perspective was inadequate. Have you noticed Earthly perspective is always inadequate, correct? What do we view life from? Most of the time, from an earthly perspective. When you view life from an earthly perspective, does it leave you with questions? I wonder why God did this. I wonder why God did that. If I were God, I would do, 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 do. That's an earthly perspective. That's a very human perspective. John needs to see heaven's perspective, and so do we. How many of you have ever flown into Bakersfield? I mean, on an airplane, right? Yeah, I know, I know. Some of you, I'm where I am, okay. Back in the day, you were flying, yes, right? You fly at night, and you, you're coming in, you know, and you look at all the lights. Have you noticed that that's a little different point of view than being stuck on Rosedale Highway at 5 o'clock? Just a little bit. Well, that's what we're doing here. We're going up on the 30,000-foot level, and we're going to take a look at life from heaven's point of view. By the way, Revelation, the book, makes absolutely no sense at all unless you view it from the perspective of God's throne. That's why the world, without the Holy Spirit, looks at this and they have no comprehension what they're talking about. You have the mind of Christ because you have the indwelling Holy Spirit who will illuminate you in all truth. Actually, nothing makes sense on planet Earth apart from the perspective of God's throne. So, he says, John, come up here. By the way, come up here does not mean... It doesn't represent the rapture of the church. I happen to believe in the rapture of the church. Scripture clearly teaches it, 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians. But John is not called up to heaven for glorification. He's called up for revelation. 
He's not called up for reward. He's called up to record. He says, I want you to come up here. I want to show you what's going to take place, and I want you to write it down for the benefit of manna. That's what it says, right? It says, for the benefit of the church that's going to follow for the next 2,000 years who are going to read that and be encouraged by it. However, John's journey to heaven, if we're going to see this here, may illustrate the rapture. The typology is very, very striking. Uh, John heard a voice. We're going to hear a voice, 1 Thessalonians 4. John heard a trumpet. We're going to hear a trumpet, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, John saw heaven opened. Obviously, heaven's going to be open for the believers, John 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4. So it's a type of rapture. But we'll get into more of that later on. So he hears the voice of Jesus Christ, the exalted Son of God saying, come up here, I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you a heaven's perspective in verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne was standing in heaven, and God sitting on the throne. Now in the Spirit is clearly a, a transcendent state, right? In the Spirit here means that John was empowered by the Holy Spirit so that he could perceive, comprehend spiritual realities beyond the space-time dimension, Right? Now, we have the mind of Christ so we can understand the Word of God, but John was in the Spirit in a transcendent fashion in the sense that he could actually comprehend in what was going on in heaven and be transported there. Now, by the way, I doubt that John went physically to heaven, right, any more than Paul. Paul said, my experience in 2 Corinthians 12 was so intense, I didn't know if I was in the body or out of the body. I literally didn't know if I was in heaven physically or my body was here on earth and I went there in the form of a vision. I'm pretty convinced John was pretty much in that particular status. But anyway, he sees what's the primary theme of this chapter. The throne. A throne shows up 13 times in 11 verses. Now when God repeats something, what can you conclude? It's, imp it's important. He says, pay attention. It's scuche, right? This is important. 13 times in 11 verses. Revelation as a whole contains 40 references to the throne. It's all about a throne. In Scripture, a throne always represents rule, authority, sovereignty, and judgment. A throne always involves rule, authority, sovereignty, and judgment. And this throne is standing in heaven. Have you noticed that this throne is not a piece of furniture that you can move? This is not a portable throne that you can steal, right? This throne is standing, which means it's fixed. It's immovable, it's eternal, it's permanent. This, no one's gonna steal God's throne and take over the rule, correct? It's important that we understand that because you and I are going to have experiences probably this week, certainly in the next couple of weeks, where you're gonna say, I hope somebody's paying attention. I literally said, God, if you're on the throne, is this your siesta time? Are you taking a nap? Because when you look at your circumstances, what do you conclude? They're a mess, right? If God is on the throne, how come the planet is such a disaster? Because he's on the throne. Because it's all part of his plan. It's all part of his plan. So the throne is a symbol of God's sovereign rule over everything, and this throne is not located in a palace. You will never, ever, ever see palace in Revelation. This throne is located in a temple. See, if there's a palace, you have a civic ruler that we obey out of fear. A throne implies a God that you worship and you obey out of love. There's still obedience, but the motivation 
is to obey out of love. So this palace, this uh, throne is in a temple. Of course, Revelation tells us that God himself is the temple, which is, we could spend a lot of time on this. Okay, I'm going to um, give you a little overview on heaven, brief, brief, brief. It's really important you understand that heaven is a material place. It has substance. Heaven it has a locality. It has a geography. It is tangible, and yet it is beyond space and time. It is both spiritual and it is material. How do we know that? Jesus was raised from the dead bodily. Yes? You know that. He was raised from the dead bodily. He ascended into heaven bodily. He ate food in front of his disciples bodily. We know he has a resurrected body. It has flesh and bone. It doesn't say he has blood. It says he has flesh and bone. Luke 24. Jesus now dwells in a spiritual material location called heaven. And he's preparing a place for us to dwell in heaven, John 14. And you will not be ghosts in heaven. You will have a body. You will have your body. Now, it's going to be improved on what you're currently looking at, right? Heavily improved. If you needed a little motivation to go to heaven, all you got to just look in the mirror and go, I really need to go to heaven, right? I mean, I, I need this new body, right? This resurrected body, the one that's free from sin. First John tells us we will be like him because we will see him as he is, which means we will have a resurrected body that in some cases, in some Situ I mean, in all situations, will be somewhat like his. I'm not saying you're going to get Jesus' body, but you're going to have a resurrected body. 1 Corinthians 15, for those of you who want to do a little more homework. So Revelation 4 is all about the throne. Now, I want you to get your pen out, because we're going to walk through this. You're going to move from the throne to on the throne to around the throne to from the throne to before the throne to in and around the throne and to toward the throne. Seven. Interesting. Seven's the number of completion, right? Number of perfection. Seven different perspectives all centered on the throne. All right. Verse one, or the first one on the throne, verse two, tells us that the throne is filled. Here's the principle. Heaven's throne is not vacant. Really important you understand that. Heaven's throne is not vacant. God is on the throne and completely in control of everything, including your children, your grandchildren, your relatives, and even you. Heaven's throne is not empty. It's occupied by its rightful owner. In Scripture, God the Father is never portrayed other than seated on the throne, ruling and reigning. Satan is always viewed as scurrying and roaming around and trying to stir up trouble. God the Father is always presented as perfectly in control, always on the throne, completely in charge and everything. Now, to sit on the throne means you have the right to rule. Who does the throne belong to? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's the throne. Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1. You're looking for cross-references. Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1. Both record God as seated on his throne, high and exalted. One I didn't really pay attention to is 1 Kings 22. Ahab is going to go to war and he calls for a prophet of God. Micaiah shows up and he says, I saw the Lord seated on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him. 1 Kings 22. So the throne is not vacant. The throne is filled and God is on the throne. And we need to remember this when we look at our life.
when we look at the planet, when we look at the circumstances, when we look at the politicians in all various forms and categories, etc., and you go, oh my, we are such trouble. Look at these people who are running for office. I can't believe... It's not their throne, right? God is on the throne. Romans 13 tells us nobody gets elected except by the will of God. And when your person doesn't get elected, that's when you think he's taking a siesta. No, 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 no. Go back to the throne. Don't worry about politicians. The throne. Verse 3. And he who was sitting on the throne was like a jasper stone and the sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now, John says like a jasper stone because there are literally no human words, if you will, to describe God's very essence. God dwells in light unapproachable. 1 Timothy 6 tells us no one can see God and live. Remember, Moses couldn't see the face of God in Ezekiel 33, only the backside, because holy, man can, or holy God cannot look upon sinful man and man will live. So, God, so John's now using a, a figure of speech. There's 200 figures of speech plus in Scripture. He's using something called a simile. What's a simile? Similar. He says like. The one on the throne is like a jasper stone. So, an asardius. A simile is a figure of speech that compares two things that are considered different in order to clarify what's being described. I don't know if you feel folks are into poetry, but Robert Burns, the poet, wrote a very, very famous poet called, um, he's talking about his love, and he says, Oh, my love's like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. Oh, my love's like a melody that's sweetly played in tune. He's describing his love in language. You would say, she's got, she's got a face like a rose. Do you spray it? Are there bugs on it? He's using a, he's using a simile. He's using a simile. I know. I listen to how you describe your love. Oh, yeah. Growling like a dog today, right? Okay. He's using a simile to try and explain what is unexplainable. See, what we know about jasper, jasper is a very clear, translucent rock. It's almost like a diamond. And clear stones like a diamond are so valuable because they refract the entire light spectrum like a diamond. How many of you have seen a diamond? Ever, ever, those of you that are married, you ever went shopping for a diamond? You know, they put it on the black for contrast, and you notice there's really bright lights in there. You know the value of a diamond? It refracts light. If it didn't refract light, you wouldn't pay all that money for it, right? Okay. So, Revelation 21 tells us that the entire city, the New Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven. It's going to be brilliant and crystal clear, the entire thing transparent like jasper, like a diamond. So, John says... He who was on the throne was like a jasper. He's saying he's light, lots of light, and he's also like a sardius stone, which is named after the city of Sardis, interestingly, because that's where the stone is mined. A sardius, today we would call it a carnelian. Carnelian, it's a, literally a blood-red, ruby-colored stone. Very, very bright red, blazing red. So John is describing God in terms of light. Interestingly enough, 1 John 1, 5, John says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. One of the things you'll notice in heaven, everything's transparent. Everything's transparent. Everything reflects light, but there's no shadows in heaven. There's no darkness in heaven because there is no darkness in God. Psalm 102 says, the Lord is literally robed in light. 
Daniel 7 describes God's throne as ablaze with flames. Anytime you see a picture of heaven, you're always going to see light. Interesting that the, that the uh, jasper and the sardius stones were the first and the last stones on the high priest's breastplate. You know what the breastplate was used for? To make intercession for the sins of the people. So we even see the mercy of God in how John describes him. All right, so we've gone on the throne. Now we're going to go to around the throne. It says there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald. And this rainbow completely encircled the throne just like a halo. Green probably was the most visible color in the rainbow. And Ezekiel 1 records this exact same rainbow. What does a rainbow represent? Promise of God, never destroy the earth again with a flood. Genesis 9.13 to Noah. So anytime you see a rainbow in scripture, it's a picture of God's faithfulness and our flakiness. Remember, God is faithful, we're flaky. That's why we depend on the rainbow as promise. Interesting that the rainbow usually shows up after the storm. This rainbow shows up before the storm. The storm's going to break in chapter 6. I mean, it's really going to break in chapter 6. God is saying, I'm faithful before the storm, during the storm, after the storm. My rainbow reminds you of that, and this rainbow is permanent in the heavens. Permanently, God is saying, you're going to look at this rainbow for all eternity. It's going to be a testimony of my faithful covenant-keeping nature. All right. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitted, clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their head. 24 thrones. These thrones are near God's throne, a place of blessing, a place of favor. And there's multiple thrones. Interesting, a throne always implies rule, so it may indicate a form of shared rule or shared uh, governorship, if you will. If there's a throne in heaven other than God's, God established it. If someone's sitting on the throne in heaven other than God's throne, who put him there? God put him there, right? Interesting that in uh, chapter 2, Romans, I mean, Revelation 2.27, Revelation 3.21, to both letters, I think it was Thyatira and Laodicea, Jesus said, you, my church, are going to reign with me. Interesting. Reign with me. You're actually going to share my throne. You're going to sit on the throne with me. There's a lot of debate over who these 24 elders are, what they represent. One of the most common ones is that they're probably angels. I would argue that that's probably not true. In Scripture, you never see angels on thrones, ever. In Scripture, you never see angels sitting down. You know how you see angels in Scripture? Hovering. Hovering. Ready to serve. Instantly available to do the will of the Father. Angels are servants. You know who they serve? You. At the will of the Father. They serve God, ultimately, but He commands them to serve you. You never see angels with crowns because angels do not receive rewards because angels at this point in time have no free will. Now they did, and Lucifer led a third of them off into the deep end literally, but angels don't receive rewards in the same way believers do, and these folks have crowns, which means they're rewarded for something. And angels are never called elders because they don't get old. Right? They don't age. They're, they're timeless. Angels are never numbered. There's just lots and lots, myriads and myriads of them. These are 24. So it's very likely these 24 elders represent human beings. They probably represent the exalted, redeemed church. Now, it doesn't say that, so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be dogmatic here, but when you look at all of Scripture and bring it to bear on this, I would say that the likelihood is that there are human beings who represent the exalted church. It says they're sitting. 
if you are sitting in the presence of God, that is a form of reward in itself. It means your labor is done and you have entered into rest. You're sitting at that point. So these, the church clearly is in heaven by now because we're in chapter 4. The rapture took place between chapter 3 and chapter 4. They're rewarded. They entered into rest. Revelation 3.21, Jesus promised that his church would sit with him on his father's throne. It says they're also not just sitting, they're clothed in white garments. Now in scripture, white garments always represents purity and victory. Revelation 3.5, he promises the church, those of you who overcome will dwell and be clothed in white garments. Now the white garments that you and I wear are not our works. Amen? Because our works are filthy rags. The white garments we have is the righteousness of Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is a gift that Jesus Christ clothes us with to deal with our sin nature. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us, Romans 8, so we know that the white also symbolizes victory. So they're seated, they have white garments, which means they're purity, and they have what on their heads? Golden crowns. This, the, the word crown there is Stephanos. Stephanos means the victor's crown. Remember we talked about when you run the race in the Olympic Games, and if you won, you got a wreath, and that was a Stephanos. That was the crown. It was a reward for having competed and overcome and gone through the trouble and tribulation. These folks have Stephanos. They don't have diadems. Diadem is for royalty, king, but the gold would indicate uh, royalty, so that's interesting as well. The overcomer's crown, 1 John 5, 4. So believers, not angels, were promised in Revelation 2, 10, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, and clearly they have them. Now there's 24 I've, I've, met, I've read so much, there's so much ink I've gone through here trying to discern what this 24 means, but generally speaking in Scripture, 24 represents completion and representation. In 1 Chronicles 24, if you're looking for a cross-reference, David appointed 24 elders to represent the 24 courses of priests in the temple worship. These 24 elders, I've read that they represent the nation of Israel. Probably not. Israel's not yet saved. That won't happen until 144,000 evangelists. We're going to get into that later. I've heard it that these 24 elders probably represent tribulation saints. That doesn't happen yet because they're not saved yet. They will be. So most likely these 24 elders represent the church. Now the church is no longer on earth. The church is in heaven. The church is raptured at this point in time. So we know the church is in heaven in chapter 4. Now, we've seen the throne, we've seen on the throne, we've seen around from the throne, now we're going to look at out from the throne. Verse 5. Out from the throne come what? Flashes of lightning and rumblings or sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Here's the principle. God's holiness hates sin. And he will ultimately destroy it. Now that's a bit of a problem because you and I have something called a sin nature. So how does God destroy sin and still love us? That's what the cross is all about, right? But God hates sin. He despises it. He will not tolerate it in any form. And he's going to destroy it. And that's one of the purposes of the Great Tribulation in chapter 6 through 19. Out from the throne. Since the throne represents God, this means out from God himself comes thunder and lightning. Now, what, when you hear thunder and see lightning, what do you assume? There is a storm. Whoa, well, when you read chapter 6 through 19, there is a worldwide storm that's going to happen, right? 
Every time thunder's mentioned in Revelation is always in conjunction with impending judgment. Always. Thunder never shows up unless it has to do with judgment. A little cross-reference, Revelation 8.5, an angel comes, takes fire from the altar, throws it down to earth. There's an earthquake, thunder, and lightning. You really have to understand how much God hates sin when he will create a constant storm in heaven over it. There's lightning and thunder, there's no rain, but it's not the fury of nature he's talking about, it's the fury of God. Most of us in contemporary Christianity are not really comfortable with a God who is wrathful. We really like a God who is love, right? Who's going to love us and coddle us and be the good shepherd, and he is all of that. But he's also God who loves us so much he will not tolerate sin any more than you would tolerate cancer in your grandchild. You wouldn't. You'd say, this stuff is evil. It's going to kill that which I love. I'm going to have to deal with it. That's what God does. Exodus 19, when God came down on Mount Sinai to give Israel the law, holy God comes down on the mountain. What happened to the mountain? There's major earthquakes, right? There's smoke and fire. There's thunder and lightning. There's thick clouds. There's a trumpet blast. Actually, the children of Israel were shaking so bad. They said, Moses, you go talk to God. We can't come anywhere close here. We're going to get killed. They understood their sin and his holiness. That's a word picture. God told them in Exodus, don't touch the mountain or you're going to die. Right? So the holiness of God cannot tolerate sin, and you get a little picture of his fury over sin in heaven. And chapter 6 through 19, you're going to see his fury over sin on earth. Coming up. All right, before the throne, verse 5, And there were seven lamps of fire before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, we see in chapter 1 these lampstands. You know, these lampstands that represent the church itself. That's chapter 1. Those were indoor lampstands. Indoor, light the inside. These are not indoor lamps, and these are outdoor torches. Hot, bright, flaming, and they're burning before God's throne. And he says what they are. They're the seven spirits of God. We've heard this before. Seven is always a number of completion and fulfillment. We know there is only how many Holy Spirits? One Holy Spirit. But his ministry has multidimensional. We've already talked about this in, in Isaiah 11.2. Isaiah 11:2, we find out that the Holy Spirit has a sevenfold ministry. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel, strength, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So there are seven aspects or seven titles which represent the fullness of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Both God the Father and the Holy Spirit are pictured as full of wrath over sin. You know who's missing so far? Jesus. Be here next week. Chapter 5 is all about the Lamb. All about the Lamb. The Lion and the Lamb. Jesus is going to come and take the scroll. We'll talk about that next week. He says, also before the throne there was something like a sea of glass like crystal. Crystal buck. Well, kind of the same name, right? Exodus 24 tells us that Moses and Aaron and 70 of the elders saw this same foundation or pavement. What I want you to think of, I want you to think of a crystal pavement, a, a foundation that's made out of clear glass prism, and it reflects light. And the throne of God sets on this sea of glass, right? It's a sea not because it has waves, it's a sea because it's huge. 
He cannot see the end of this crystal pavement that the throne rests on. Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 say the same thing. Exodus 24 says the same thing. So it's very, very consistent. When you get a view of heaven, the throne is sitting on top of this crystal glass sea, and the purpose of it is to reflect the glory of God. A crystal prism reflects the glory of God. So God's throne sets on something that reflects his glory throughout the universe. It's a brilliant pavement, and he's using anthropomorphic terms. He's using similes. It's like a crystal sea, like a glass sea, so he can describe it for you. Now he says, I'm going to move to the, to the center of the throne. In the center and around the throne, we have what? Four living creatures. And he describes them in ways that we cannot comprende. We don't understand this. He says they're full of eyes in front and behind. You're going full of eyes in front and behind. The Greek actually is inward. And you're kind of going, how do you have an eye that looks inward? You know, how do you physically represent that? So we're moving closer to the throne. These four living creatures are the inner circle. They're closest to God, they're surrounding God, they're constant motion around God, and they are very clearly described in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. In Ezekiel 10, they're called cherubim. Now, cherubim is the plural of cherub. Cherubim are an elevated class of angel. There's only two classes of angels we know about in Scripture. Well, actually, three. We have cherubim, we have seraphim, Isaiah 6, and we have archangels. We only have one archangel mentioned, and that is Michael. The only other angel mentioned is Gabriel, and he's a messenger. So cherubim are seen to be devoted to the holiness of God because in the tabernacle and the temple, God told Moses and Solomon, I want you to build cherubim and put them in the holy of holies and I, God, will dwell between the cherubim. Interesting, on the mercy seat. So that's a picture. And here, these people are around the throne and flying above the throne, covering the holiness of God. Who was the number one cherub? Lucifer. Lucifer was the anointed cherub that covered, right? Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. You want to cross-reference that. He was supposed to guard and cover God's holiness. He was the worship leader. He would let all the music in heaven before evil was found in him. Now, the other place we see cherubim was Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden. What did God do? He placed cherubim at the east side of the garden so they couldn't come back in and eat the fruit of the tree of life and live forever in a sinful state. That would have been really, really bad. If Adam and Eve had have eaten the tree of life in a sinful state, we would be stuck here forever. You couldn't actually die and go to heaven. You'd be stuck here forever. Now that would be a nightmare beyond all nightmares. As you age, and you will, Heaven will be ardently desired. Believe me. When God says it's time to come home, you will say, I am so ready. I am so ready. Now, it says they're full of eyes. In Scripture, eyes always represent awareness. Eyes always represent intelligence. And eyes always represent alertness. It means that they scrutinize and they comprehend and they know Ezekiel says the exact same thing. He says, these cherubim are full of eyes. See, when you get the consistent picture throughout Scripture, you go, hmm, all four people who go to heaven kind of say the same thing. Well, maybe they're seeing the same thing. Ah, duh, right? So it doesn't say that they're omniscient. They don't know everything like God does, but they're constantly alert to protect God's holiness. That's what eyes mean, fully aware. 
Now, now it starts to describe them in verse 7. And by the way, these cherubim being closest to God are going to reflect the holiness of God. You don't get close to God unless you become holy like God, correct? Because he can't tolerate sin. So these creatures, he gives you four descriptions. He said, verse 7, the first one's like a lion, second's like a calf, third like a man, the fourth like a flying eagle. So the cherubim have faces that represent different aspects of their character that reflect on the character of God. The lion represents the untamed creatures and symbolizes strength, symbolizes power. That's the lion. Interesting, the Gospel of Matthew spends all our time talking about Jesus Christ, King. What's a lion? King of the beasts, right? King of the animal kingdom. So we not only see aspects of their character, but the Gospels are going to show Jesus in these same four fashions. The Gospel of Matthew talks about Jesus the king like a lion. The Gospel of Mark presents Jesus as a servant like a calf or an ox because the calf or an ox represents domestic creatures and it symbolizes service. The Gospel of Luke presents Jesus as what? Son of man. Jesus said dozens of times in Luke, I am the son of man, the human side. That humanity is the apex of all of creation, not creator, creation, and that symbolizes reason and intelligence. And the eagle is the king of the flying creatures and represents speed. And the Gospel of John presents Jesus as what? The Son of God. Where is the home of the Son of God? In the air called heaven, high and lofty. So all four of these representations are mirrored in the Gospel and represent the aspects of the character of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which we're going to see next chapter. So these creatures' job is what? They lead the worship in heaven. They lead the worship in heaven. If you look at verse 8, it tells you, here's the principle. Heaven is consumed with worshiping God. What is consuming you? Heaven is consumed with worshiping God. What is consuming you? Verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Now, Isaiah 6 saw this exact same picture. The angels there had six wings. They were called seraphim, which literally means burning ones burning ones. And Isaiah 6 says, with two wings they covered their face. Why would an angel in the presence of God cover their face? Because they cannot look at holy God because they are creature. They're creature. They're not sinful, but they're creature. They're not creator. There is an Un, an infinite divide between creature and creation. Even the angels in God's presence cover their face because they cannot look at the holiness of God. Two wings, they cover their feet. Why would they cover their feet? They're standing on holy ground. Wherever God is, is holy ground. We've got the song, I'm standing on holy ground. What did God tell Joshua? Take your sandals off, you're standing on holy ground. Why? Because the captain of the army of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, was there. It's holy ground. They had to cover their feet. And with two wings, Isaiah 6 tells us, they flew or hovered. Literally, instantly available to do God's will. So the cherubim here, their eternal job description, 
and their joy description. By the way, that's kind of interesting. If your job description is your joy description, you've got a good life. Their job description, their joy description is to lead heaven's worship. And the focus of their worship is three things. God's holiness, God's power, and God's eternality. And they say, holy, 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 how many times? Three times. Three probably represents the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect completion. Holy is the primary attribute of Almighty God. It is the summation of who God is. God the Creator is completely other, completely separate from His creation. He is completely separate from evil of any kind. And God's holiness is going to reveal itself in chapter 6 through 19 by judging sin and by destroying sin. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The, Greek, the Hebrew here for Almighty is, you already know, El Shaddai. For those of you that are old enough, you probably sung that old Maranatha song, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, right? It translates as the one who holds all. The strongest one is a term of superlative. Almighty is a superlative term. No one, if you're almighty, no one can stop your will, right? If you're almighty, whatever you choose to do, you do, right? Are you almighty? Your grandchildren think you are. <laughs> Keep the bluff in as long as you can because they'll figure it out sooner or later. There's only one almighty and that's God. He does whatever he pleases. Holy, 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 Lord God almighty. And they give you three descriptors, who was, and who is, and who is to come. Some things have a beginning, and they also have an end, right? Your pet, I'm sorry to tell you, has a beginning, they have a birth date, and they have an end. They do not have a living soul. I know, I know, I know, I'm telling you biblically, animals are not everlasting. They have a beginning and an end. Some things have a beginning and no end, right? You have a birth date. Are you going to live forever? You are going to live forever. The only question is where. Location is the key. Not are you going to live. You're going to live forever. You're, you're, you're everlasting. People are everlasting. They live forever. God alone has no beginning and no end. That's eternal. So he says who was and who is and who is to come, which means he's the, everla the eternal I am. And I know most of you are going to come back and go, I don't agree with your theology of pets, Brad. <laughs> and Marin's number one on that list. I'm telling you. I can say that Billy Graham said one time, whatever you need in heaven for your happiness, you will have. But what you think you need in heaven now, your opinion will change when you get there. Yes. Believe me. You know? So... Here's the sobering corollary. Since God is eternal, what else is eternal? And hell are both going to be with us for all eternity. Now, I can't wrap my head around eternity. I cannot. But the notion that you could spend forever in God's presence is beyond my comprehension. And the notion that you could spend forever in hell separated from God in everlasting torment in the lake of fire for all eternity is equally beyond my comprehension. But it better motivates you because eternity is real. You're not going to die. You're physically going to die, but you're going to live forever. The location of what, where you live is settled at the cross. What you do there is settled in 1 Corinthians 3. So live <laughs> 
that's redeemed too. <laughs> Verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive honor and glory and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Here's the principle. You cannot exalt yourself and Jesus Christ at the same time. I heard that from Howard Hendricks 30 years ago. You cannot exalt yourself and Jesus Christ at the same time. Here's the corollary. Everyone, every day, makes this choice. I could say every hour makes this choice. You cannot exalt yourself and Jesus Christ at the same time. Everyone, every day, makes this choice. Now, I want you to notice the future tense of this passage. It says that when the praise begins, then the elders will fall down, future tense, will worship him, future tense, will cast their crowns. This happens after the rapture. This happens before the great tribulation. It's not currently happening, but John got a view of what is to come. Now, six times in Revelation, you see these 24 elders fall down. Six times. Where do they fall down? Always before the throne. Always before the throne. They don't get confused about what they're supposed to worship. They're very clear on what they're supposed to worship. You worship Almighty God sitting on the throne. And part of their worship is casting their crowns before him. And I've also read a lot of ink that's been spilled on. Do they throw their crowns? Do they lay their crowns down? But the point is, crowns in Scripture symbolize rewards. The Stephanos crowd, or crown is a crown of reward for overcoming, for having gone through the troubles and tribulations of this life and remaining faithful. Those crowns are given to you by Jesus Christ at the Bema seat. The Bema seat was the seat where they literally awarded the wreaths for the Olympic Games, and Paul uses that to symbolize what Jesus is going to do. He's going he's to give you crowns for faithful service. Where do those crowns come from? God. So who owns them? God. Where do your gifts come from? And I know many of you are very gifted people. You're very talented. Who is the source of those? Who owns them? Who do they belong to? So what are you supposed to do with them? Serve him with those gifts, not serve yourself with those gifts. It is all about the throne. And the most important thing to remember about the throne is you ain't on it. Right? This is God the Father. You're going to see God the Son the next chapter, and He's on the throne as well. And what do they say? Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor. Worthy means, worship literally means to declare the worth of someone. So when they surrender these crowns, and I'm going to corollary this into today, we should be surrendering, present your body as a living sacrifice. We should be surrendering our time, our talents, our treasures, our passions, our ambitions, all for the, at the throne of Almighty God. Surrendering is an act of worship. Laying the crown down is an act of worship. Laying your rights down, as Pastor Roger said this morning, ultimately is for the love of the body, but even beyond that, it's an act of worship. Who laid down the most rights? Philippians 2, the kenosis. He emptied himself and became a servant to the point of death. And we're going, oh, my rights are really important to me. Well, if they were really important to Jesus, he wouldn't have come and you wouldn't be here. You'd be lost in trespasses and sins. So 
worship declares the worth of someone and these 24 elders, which represents the church in heaven, are saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to do what? Receive glory and honor. Why? They tell you. Because you created all things. This is God the Father. God alone is worthy of worship because he alone is the creator of everything else, including us. Okay. A couple of brief comments, and I'll, I'll run through uh, the key ideas again with Rob. You will never understand what is happening in your life on earth until you see it from the perspective of the throne. You still may not understand why, but you will know who. If you know who is on the throne, you don't have to understand why. Because if he told you why, you would argue with him. <laughs> you would. Because I'm you. I'm people. You're a people. We argue. That's what we do. The only way you're going to have peace with your circumstances in life is worship. <coughs> Surrender. Lay it down before the throne. Whatever it is in your life that needs to lay down, you need to let it go and surrender it before the throne. Because you're acknowledging that he's in control and you're not. And that's where peace lies. Not in knowing why, not in having God explain to you. There's no peace in that because our brain's not big enough to understand it. It's in worship. All right, the key idea. The central theme of Revelation is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Never forget that. He's coming back. That should inform everything we do every day. He's coming back, and he can come back at any time. The only accurate view of life on earth is the view from God's throne in heaven, and we have been blessed to see the first half of heaven's worship, right? Secondly, heaven's throne is not vacant. God is not taking a siesta. God's hearing aid works very well. He is on the throne. He is ruling everything. Whether you understand that or not is not important. The reality is he is. That's what's important. Number three, God's holiness hates sin and he will ultimately destroy it. And if you have sin in your life, he knows how to do surgery. And I have had surgery done without anesthetic by God. I have. Because I was stubborn and unwilling to let go, and unwilling to worship. And God said, fine, I love you enough. I'm going to separate the sin from you, and if I have to cut it out of you without anesthetic, I'll do it. You can surrender early. I recommend worship early, real early, like daily. Start the day that way. Number five, heaven is consumed with worshiping God. What is consuming you? I suspect we are not consumed enough with worshiping God, and that's why we don't have perspective or peace. Lastly, you cannot exalt yourself in Jesus Christ at the same time. Everyone, every day, makes that choice. All right. Next week, we will see the Lion and the Lamb, Lord willing, chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, you will see the judgment of God against sin in chapter 6 through 19 in the context of the perspective of heaven. Okay? I do love you. Jesus loves you more than I do. And he wrote down so we would be informed so that we could obey, right? So now that you know, do.